We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and open to 1 Thessalonians. I have a confession to make. I don't like group projects, and I don't like team-building exercises. Now, the millennials in the room are probably going, why in the world would you not like group projects? Because they kind of grew up on group projects. I'm a Gen Xer. We are, by definition, the loner generation. And we don't need anyone. Or at least we think we don't need anyone. The reality of it is the reason I don't like team-building exercises and group projects is that uh, I am your typical fiercely independent American who'd rather not rely on anyone's help. But deeper than that, I have a sin nature and broken expectations that tell me I can't rely on anyone. This comes to a head when we're talking about faith. And when I was in my senior year, I was in my spring semester of my senior year, in high school, I felt the profound need of God's people like I'd never felt it before. I had just come out of a very, very bad relationship, one that required me to take a stand and to end a relationship that my friends who were nominal believers didn't understand. Not even my parents understood. Not even my parents shared my conviction in that. And I was surrounded by those who would steer me the wrong way. I got to the point where I felt it so deeply that I was alone in my faith that I pulled over to the side of the road and wept and begged God to bring Christian friends into my life who would love and encourage me. And not every single one of my prayers has ever been answered this quickly. But a friend of mine who had moved away came back into town, and he was the support I needed in that moment. And he introduced me to a group of friends from our high school, one of the bad boys of school, one of the uh, class comedians, and the guy that you're... You, usually would find in the principal's office, came to know Jesus Christ. And in his boldness and his faith, he gathered his friends and others together on, Sunday, on Saturday nights at his house for Bible study. And there, there I found a community of faith that I had never found before. It profoundly impacted me. It influenced me. It grounded me. God designed us to grow in community with one another. And we know that because Scripture tells us that. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. Those are just a few verses, but they pack a tremendous punch. 
Look at verse 11. There Paul is telling the Thessalonians to encourage one another and to build one another up. And though encouragement and building up are sometimes treated as, as the same thing, there are two different things here, working in concert with one another. They're complementary things. We know that they're two different things we have, because we have two different Greek words here. First one is parakaleo, which means advocate, comforter, helper. That's the word that is translated here as encouragement. We think of the Holy Spirit as a paraclete, one who comes alongside, one who convicts, one who corrects, one who walks with. While building up is oikodomeo, which literally means to build or construct, but metaphorically means to promote growth in Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. Taken together, we are to use encouragement as a means towards growth of one another in Christ. The one another aspect here means that while the word and spirit are vital to our growth, and other believers are essential to us being transformed by the word and spirit. They're vital for our growth. That cuts against our American independence our determination to do our spiritual walk alone. We need others to come alongside us to provide encouragement that we might be built up in our faith. We need one another to provide encouragement for one another to be built up in our faith. So what does it look like according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11 to be encouraged and be built up? Well, first... We are encouraged and built up by pointing to what Jesus has already done. Now notice I said by pointing to Jesus. There's a lot of different kinds of community. Community is not only found in the church. For instance, there's an online community that I belong to full of geeks. We like science fiction films. And we find great community in talking about our love of science fiction films. There's nothing really exclusive about community, but the community that, that, that is talked about by the Apostle Paul here is not just people with whom you have like mind. It's that. But it's a community that points back to Christ. That is what we're here to do. We're here to glorify and point back to Christ. That's what gospel community is. And we need both aspects of that. That's why in the, in the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with loving God, and the last six have to do with loving man. You cannot have one part of that equation. You have to have the horizontal and the vertical together. And the vertical is what empowers that horizontal. So what does it look like to point one another to what Jesus has already done? Look at verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So the first and most important way to encourage one another is to point back to the fact that we have been justified in Jesus Christ. And if you sit long enough with a Christian that's really struggling, a lot of their struggle goes back to this fundamental reality and a tremendous doubt of this fundamental reality that God would forgive them. 
that it's been paid for, that it is finished, that it is done, that the wrath is ended because it's been poured out on Jesus Christ. Because when you sit with people who are struggling with their sin or with pain, they begin to say these words, I feel like God has abandoned me. I must have sinned the unpardonable sin. I don't know that God can forgive me for this. And what they need to know at that moment is that they're dealing with something that has already been done, already been paid for. In that community I was talking about that I found in my senior year of high school, we had a a young man who had come out of a very broken home and out of addiction, and he struggled mightily with addiction. And we were always concerned when we didn't see him on a Saturday night. And as our study started, there was this darkness that kind of fell over the group because we noticed he wasn't there. No one could get a hold of him. No one knew where he was. So we started praying. We knew what it meant for him to be out of contact. And sure enough, he showed up. Weeping. Talking about how he had wounded Christ yet again. Talking about how he had given into his addiction. And he would not be persuaded that Christ could forgive him. Until one of us stood up and stood in front of him. And that person said to the rest of the group, who do you see? And they named the name of the person standing in front of them. Do you see Brian? No. Then he turned to Brian and said, when the Father sees you, He sees Jesus. You have been forgiven. There is forgiveness in Christ. He has dealt with your sin on the cross. And we need to remind each other of that because we tend to put a conjunction at the end of Jesus died for me, but however, you see, what I did is not forgivable. What I've done is God can never look on and forgive. But the reality is that God is not pouring out his wrath on us. Though he may discipline us, it's a completely different story altogether. Discipline has nothing to do with wrath. Wrath has to do with punishment. Discipline has to do with discipleship and training. The love of a father. We must encourage one another that no matter how we feel, that our feelings are not realities. That the reality is God's word and what it says about us. If we have truly bowed the knee before Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, our sins are gone. They're forgiven. And when we come to him, when we have sinned, he will forgive. Verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath. 
And we need to write that on our hearts. We need to remember that phrase. We need to utter that phrase to those who feel like God has abandoned them, shut them out, and won't forgive them. God has not destined you for wrath should be on our tongue. The words of Scripture. If you came in here this morning and you don't know Christ and you feel the overwhelming sense that you were under the wrath of God, I've got some extremely good news for you. If you confess Christ as Savior and Lord, you can know for sure that you won't be dealing with the wrath of God. You will not be rejected. And you'll be his forever. If you're a believer and you came in this room this morning and you say, you're saying to yourself, I don't know that God can forgive me. I've got some great news for you. The cross shows you he has. In Christ, the wrath is done. So we show the love of, of, of Christ to others when we point to what he has done. But we also encourage and build one another up by showing, by pointing to what Jesus is currently doing. Where am I getting that? Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Those five words at the end there are extremely significant. Because those five words, just as you are doing, that's Paul encouraging and building up the, Thessalon the Thessalonian church. He's telling them, he's showing them what he sees God is doing in them right now. Though he is encouraging them to continue to encourage and lift up one another, he also sees that God has already started a work in them. When we come alongside others, it is to see what, to point out what God is doing in the work of sanctification. Sometimes it's hard for us to see that alone. We have blind spots. Sometimes those blind spots are we don't see our error, error and we need someone to come along and, and point that out to us. But other times we don't see where we are growing in our faith because we're just too close to it. And we need another to come alongside us and say, you know, what you're struggling with now, look, I've seen so many victories in your life already. Or, yes, you may be focusing on this, but you've been such a blessing to me in this. It is important that we share with others what we see in them. And for that, we need to be living alongside one another. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be having conversation with one another. It's, it's not enough to walk in, hear a sermon, and walk away. I know that's it's convenient. And getting cl close to people means that they're going to see the good as well as the ugly in our lives. But how are we ever to get that encouragement that someone sees God at work in us if we aren't vulnerable enough to walk alongside others? To risk that, like me, who didn't really want to trust anybody, giving that up for the sake of my own spiritual growth being in community with another person. 
But there are some ways to be careful in this. We must be careful that in building one another up, it's about what God is doing in them and not what we want to do in them. Have you ever experienced that? Someone comes alongside you and reads their story into yours. And their wants for you are the wants they have for themselves. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of doing that. But I've also experienced that. When I first started seminary, we sat down with, uh, my wife and I sat down with a pastor and his wife, and he shared with me his wisdom. His wisdom of seminary and what you should do while you're in seminary. And he told me, you should not be distracted while you're in seminary. You need to dedicate yourself to the study of the Word of God. So I, I suggest to you that you do not do three things. And here they are. Do not work with youth. It's a messy business. They require a lot of attention, more attention than you have as a scholar learning your studies. Don't do it. Two, don't have a baby. You're going to get here, and there are a lot of people who end up having children. You're going to see the announcements on the, on the door. Don't do it. Baby's going to cry at night. Baby's going to wake you up. You need to be fresh when you come in and you're studying the Word of God. Third, do not own a home. Do not own property. Because you will have to be taking care of that property. And you'll have to put effort into that. And that, again, will take you away from your primary purpose here. You're here to study the Word of God. Well, when I left, I felt this overwhelming sense of, well, maybe he's right. And then my wife and I were talking, and we, we kind of came to the conclusion that he had the gift of discouragement. Because <laughs> every, con- every time I would try to bring up something that I was passionate about, the head would start, no. That's not what God wants for you. How do you know what God wants for me? In fact, what ended up happening is I ended up doing all three of those things. I almost left seminary my first year because I was so ingrained in my studies, I didn't see the purpose, the reason behind what I was doing. And so it's when I started working with youth that I realized this stuff isn't just a lab. This isn't just a Petri dish. This is real stuff. This is real good news, and it really is transformational. I had a baby in seminary. We had a boy. I'm thankful for that every day. I'm thankful for him every day. We bought a place in seminary. We ended up selling it for $10,000 more than it was worth two years later, which gave us more to buy when we moved to Atlanta the first time. Your story is not someone else's story. So be careful not to read too much of your story into theirs. Yes, God may be doing some similar things, but in our call to make disciples, we are not called to make clones. Discipleship is about pointing people to Jesus and what Jesus is going to do in them because you were uniquely made and you were uniquely remade. You were uniquely redeemed. God is doing something in your story that he's not doing in someone else's story. The common denominator is this, that God is doing something. And the best way to get at that is through questions. 
And Jesus asked a lot of them. Because questions have a way of unveiling what's going on in our heart. Someone coming alongside us, helping us process that. Peter himself asked a question (laughs) of Jesus at the end of uh, the Gospel of John. One of my favorite passages, by the way. Jesus has just restored Peter in the famous, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me interchange. And they're walking along, and in the distance, the disciple that Jesus loved, who we're assuming is John, the writer of the gospel, who will not put his name to that phrase, is following behind them, and Jesus is telling Peter how he will stretch out his hands, he will go to the cross just like his, his master has as a disciple of his. And Peter, just like every one of us, turns around and sees this guy that everybody thinks Jesus loves more than them. He said, what about this guy? What about that guy? Because what Peter wanted to know is, look, if I'm going to suffer, I hope that guy does too. And we laugh, but we kind of are that way, aren't we? Look, if I'm suffering, I hope someone else is too. Jesus rebukes him. If I want him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? That's none of your business. His story's not your story. Your story's your story, and you're following me. And that's what Jesus says to all of us. Be careful when you're coming alongside someone and encouraging them in what God is doing, to be careful to let them answer those questions, to expose their heart directing them, giving them some direction without speaking for them, without giving them your sanctified good advice. And that's the hardest thing to do when we're living in community. Because sometimes I just want to tell people, grow up! Get over it! You need to do this, this, and this. And then the times I've told people to do this, this, and this, they didn't do this, this, and this. And they have been blessed for it. We are not the Holy Spirit. We're called to be encouragers. We are called to be paracletes, but we're not the paraclete. We need to be willing to listen and to observe and give feedback and weep with and laugh with and give counsel to But while people are trying to work out the math for themselves, don't give them the answer. They need to show their work. Where God is working with them. So we encourage and build each other up by pointing to what Jesus has done. We encourage and build one another up in pointing out what Jesus might be doing. But thirdly, We do that by pointing to what Jesus will do. Look at verses 9 through 11. They're written in the context of the second coming. That's what he's talking about here. Paul is talking about the return of Jesus. And if you look closely at verse 10, you might notice a fear that the Thessalonians had. It says, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I think there was a very real fear that those who have fallen asleep are somehow going to miss the boat when the resurrection happens, that somehow they had missed out on the blessing. And there's nothing like death to punch you in the gut and take the wind out of your faith. 
And you know that because you watched the news yesterday. Two shootings, 24 hours. And it's things like that that cause us to wrestle. And for the Thessalonians who had experienced a Christ who had overcome death, you got to know that the enemy is slipping in there saying, did he really? Did he really overcome death? Look, your brothers and sisters die. You feel the sting of that. You feel the pain of that, don't you? Then this whole Jesus thing is just pie in the sky. And when death hits us, it hits us hard. And we feel like Maybe he'll never come, and maybe those people are going to remain exactly where they are. That's their fear, and sometimes if we're honest on our bad days, when we watch the news and we see what it is and what's going on, sometimes we wonder the the same thing in the quietness of our own hearts. But the reality is that Though they experience physical death, they do not experience spiritual death. Though Jesus overcame both spiritual and physical death on the cross. For the believer, those two things are disjointed. It's the already but not yet. Right now he has resurrected us spiritually. We were dead and now we are alive. In the age to come, We are physically dead, but we will be made alive. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And Christ will triumph over evil, over death, over hell, and over the adversary who continues to lie to us about what is true. But the problem is that those thoughts, when they creep in our head, we A, think that they're unique to us, and we should never share that out loud. And B, we don't have people around us who spot for us and tell us, you know, I had the same thought myself, but the word says this. Verse 9 says, we are not destined for wrath that we will be made alive whether we are asleep or awake when Jesus comes. It's basically us communicating the truth of Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's not going to leave us undone. He's not going to leave us as abandoned foundations half-built homes. He's not going to leave us to the grave. He's not going to leave us to a world that is broken as this one is. He will make all things new. And because the darkness of the day and the fallenness of the world is so powerful, we have to encourage each other and build one another up that this is not all there is. That there is more. 
and more is coming. I remember um, sitting across from a man who was very broken in one of my former churches. His wife had left him. And he was angry. And he was wondering where Jesus was. Where could God's hand be in all of this? And how could this mess ever resolve? And I'm sitting here, fairly inexperienced, young pastor trying to encourage him, and I'm, and I'm stumbling and stuttering. What do I say? What do I say? What do I say? He had had other people come alongside him to take care of him in the church because they loved him. But here I'm supposed to give him words of encouragement, and I don't know what to say in this moment. I have never experienced that. And so, sort of out, kind of an out-of-body experience, not in sort of a mystical way, but you know what I mean. I was saying these words, and, and I'm kind of a third party to them. <laughs> the Lord is going to restore the, year that the, locust, the years that the locusts have eaten. And even as I said them, I half didn't believe them. But they're the words of God, and they're true. And I said, I don't know if he's going to do that in this age or in the life to come. I said, I don't know. About three weeks ago, I was sitting on my couch and my phone buzzed, and it was this gentleman. And I didn't even remember this conversation. He had to remind me of it. He said, you said to me that the Lord would restore the years that the locusts had eaten. And I rejoice and rejoice with me in the birth of my third son, my third child, with his new wife, experiencing the blessings from the Lord. An end he could not see as we sat across from each other in his anger. But an end that nonetheless the Lord had planned for him. Now, there's no promise that on this side of heaven that you're going to recover the years the locusts have eaten, but I promise you, in fact, I guarantee you that Scripture tells you that in the age to come, whatever you've lost on the account of Jesus, it will be restored to you tenfold. Whatever you think you've missed out on here because you followed him, will be fulfilled there. That is how we need to be encouraging one another. That is how we need to spur one another on and build each other up, to remind each other that even if we feel incomplete and we struggle with sin on this side of heaven, that 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's great encouragement in that. No, we aren't worthy of glory, but God has made us for glory and will glorify us along with Christ. 
Some time ago, TJ invited me to go with him to Windshape for leadership training. And I suspected there would be team building exercises. And boy, were there a lot of them. And I remember the very first one after the first spiel was over and how the person got all these cards out. And I'm just shaking my head. I'm like, oh, not a team building exercise. And we scattered around the room with our cards, and each card had a picture on it. And we were supposed to, to look at our card, and then we weren't supposed to show it to anybody, but somehow we were supposed to put that sequence in order. And at first it was chaos. And eventually we, we began to figure it out. And we did get in a line, and with only like maybe two adjustments, once we flipped the pictures around, we could see the bigger picture. And I have to admit, it was a good team-building exercise. And it showed me the truth. In our walk with Christ, we all have a small part of the picture. And we need each other. By and with the Spirit of God working in us with the Word amongst each other in community to see the bigger picture. The picture of what Christ has done for us and has done in us, is doing in us, and will ultimately do for us. We cannot do that alone. We absolutely need each other. And speaking of TJ, there is a group connect table right outside the door this morning. If you have never known what it's like to walk in community with others, gospel community that points back to Jesus, the only one who ever has, the only one who can have the answers for everything for which we struggle, with which we struggle, I'd encourage you to stop by that table. I'd encourage you to sign up for Group Connect. Learn more about small groups here at the church. Look, we don't push small groups because we think they're a good idea. We know that gospel community is essential. As essential as I felt in that spring term of high school when I wept for other believers to come alongside me to encourage me and build me up. It can be yours. But I encourage you for your spiritual health, for your walk with Christ, Don't just show up. Do your thing and leave. Find others who will spur you on to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, being around people, other people who are sinners, who have been saved by grace, who are being transformed, is not comfortable, it's not easy, and sometimes it's disappointing. But sometimes it just is amazing. Help us not to lose our focus, which is on you. And help us not to miss the power out of fear or a sense of individualism that comes through being with others 
and walking along with them in faith. Thank you for your word, which always encourages and builds us up. It rebukes us when we need it, but it reminds us of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Empower us through your spirit to go beyond Sunday morning and to walk along with others in their lives as believers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, sing this last song together. And as we do, ask, just pray that God will seal what he's spoken to you on your heart.